We are going to be reading Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 19. I'm sorry, verses 12 through 22. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 22. To set the uh, context, of course, uh, we have been, we looked last week at the triumphal entry. Jesus has approached Jerusalem. He's entered into Jerusalem. And we're at Matthew 21. Matthew, the book, will end at Matthew 28. So almost a third of this book um, is the final week of Jesus' life. And so that's what we're entering into now. <clears throat> so this morning we're going to look at verses 12 through 22. Let's hear the word of God. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You have perfected praise. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? And Jesus answered and said to them, assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also you will say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Let's pray together. Father, we humble ourselves now and we come to you and we ask that you would come and speak to us through the life of your son and through your son, and through the example of your son. We pray, Father, that you will help us. Father, you have told us to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And all this week, all we endured was the world trying to conform us into its image. Father, we don't want to be conformed into the image of this world. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We want our hearts and our minds and our lives to be transformed by you. And, and you have gathered us every Lord's Day so that around your word and as your word is preached, you would once again transform us. Transform us now, we pray. We come here with open hearts. Help us to see Jesus. And help us, we pray, to be changed by the power of your Holy Spirit. Work and move in our lives, we pray now. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. <clears throat> it's not unusual for parents to walk into a room and all chaos has broken out and things are messed up and things are flying and projectiles may be flying around. And for the parent to then say, what is going on here? 
what is going on here? Or, this is unacceptable. This is unacceptable behavior. Or, stop this right now. Well, in, in some ways, the passage that we're going to be primarily focusing on, which is Jesus going into the temple here, in, in some ways, hey, John, I feel an, an echo. Is there an echo in there? Can you somehow get that out of there? There you go. Um, in, in some ways, Jesus is going to be, no, oh, that's it. Send it the other way. In some ways, Jesus here is now, uh, we could kind of uh, put a title on this, on this text right here, and that is this, uh, Trouble in the Temple. Because Jesus is going to walk in there and say, what is going on here? This is unacceptable. Stop this now. But then we're going to see in the second half, the chief priests and scribes are going to come and say, what is going on here? This is unacceptable. Stop this now. And so that's kind of the structure of this, of this passage. And so what we're going to do is we're going to primarily focus, though, and I would like you to watch and listen to what Jesus is doing in this text. We want to watch him as an example and listen to him because I did entitle this Zeal for God. You're going to see zeal for God in action. But I also want you, as, as sort of a subtext, I want you to watch another thing that's going on here. I want you to watch how Jesus is constantly quoting the scriptures and justifying what he is doing by the Bible. Because what's happening here is sort of a biblical reformation of sorts. Jesus is coming into the temple and saying, we need to align this back up to the word of God because man's traditions, man's ways, man's habits have come in and destroyed this temple and I want it cleansed and back again. And that's what's going on here. So be sensitive to that in the subtext that's going on here. Of course, you know the story. Jesus walks into the temple, and then all chaos breaks out, okay? Look at verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all of those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And so Jesus goes in there, and he sees this chaotic scene. It's Passover. Passover is the time when lambs are being sacrificed, and doves and, and, and pigeons are being sacrificed, and people are in there, and they're, and they're buying and selling. Hucksters have come into the actual temple, and they're saying, I got lambs over here, I got lambs over here, cheap, cheap, I'm cheaper than him, lambs over at this stall, don't go over there. You've got hucksters there selling, I've got doves, I've got doves for the poorer people who can't afford lambs. I've got doves, I've got doves, two for one sale, whatever. You had money changers going on. Now, these money changers are people that are sitting at tables, and they have stacks of coins. And they have Rome. And what it is is you're not allowed to pay an offering into the, and into the temple with Roman money because it has images on it. It has the image of Caesar on it. You're not allowed to do that. So you have to bring your Roman money in. You got paid at your job with Roman money. You got to bring that Roman money in and you got to transfer it. You got to change that over for Hebrew money. And then you got to take your Hebrew money into the temple. And so once again, people are, and, and, and people are dickering over exchange rates and all of this sort of chaos is going on in the temple. And Jesus goes walking in there and he immediately sees this and he becomes livid with, with zeal for God. And he goes in there and he starts, literally starts chasing the animals out, chasing the people out, telling the people, get out of here. 
Get all of this stuff out of here. Get these animals out of here. And, he's, and, he's, and, and all of a sudden, chaos just breaks out. You can imagine somebody going into a store that was crowded with people and beginning to say, get out of here, get out, of, don't carry that, get out of here. And, and chase animals are now running around in this place. And then he goes up to money changers' tables and he flips the tables up like this. Coins are just rolling all over the floor, clanging all over the place. People are get, trying to get their money and trying to stop. And there's all of this that's is going on. And then he goes up to the people who, who have the doves and look at what he does. He's, he's, he's throwing their seats over. He says, get these pigeons, get these doves, get them out of here. Take all of this out of here. I want this completely cleared out. And then notice what he says in verse 13. And he said to them, it is written. The a literal translation would be that it stands written. It has been written and it still stands written. My house shall be called a house of prayer. This is supposed to be a place of prayer. But you have made it a den of thieves, a hideout of thieves, a cave of thieves, where thieves get together after they've been ripping people off and holding people up and stealing, and they bring all of that they have gotten, and they bring it in and have this huge, massive celebration, eating and drinking and laughing. You have made the temple this. And so he's quoting. He's quoting first from Isaiah chapter 56, and then he's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 7. Jesus is feeling this. This is supposed to be a place of reverence. This is supposed to be a place of prayer. This is supposed to be a place where God is being worshipped and praised. This is supposed to be a place of meditation. This is supposed to be a place now as we're approaching Passover, where sacrifices are being made, where people are dealing humbly with their sin, where people are humbling themselves before God, where people are interacting with God, where we as a congregation are coming to God. And listen, to look at what you have made it. It's, it's a marketplace with hucksters yelling and people pushing and sales and, and such. Look at what is going on. And when John tells of an earlier cleansing of the temple early on in Jesus' ministry, he says this in John 2. It says, and he said to those who sold the doves, take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. The, the word is emporium. And then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. See, Jesus was just absolutely horrified at what was happening to his father's house. And he was moved and motivated by zeal for God his father, love for God his father, the honor of God his father. And that's what you're seeing uh, opening up here, and it's powerful. We're going to return to this. But so let's then look at the second side of this story. And that's what the chief priests and scribes then do. In verse 14, we're told this. And when then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now this is, this is an, uh, again, we, we can't read this verse too quickly. We can't read this verse too quickly. Jesus is in the temple. He's cleared all of this out. Starts to calm down again a little bit. And then the word gets out somehow that Jesus of Nazareth, who has this incredible ability to heal, Jesus of Nazareth, is in the temple. Now, let me ask you this. We just went through our prayer list. Let me ask you this. What would happen if somebody who had the ability to heal like Jesus had? I'm not talking about some of these televangelist dudes who make one leg longer than the other, who her people can hardly hear, can suddenly hear a little bit better. I'm not talking about those, those hucksters. I'm talking about 
Somebody who could heal every single person who walks in the room. I'm talking about somebody who could empty a hospital. That's what Jesus had the ability to do. Imagine somebody like that comes to town. Imagine somebody like that came to Greenville. Let me ask you this. Who would you get there? Who would you go and pick him up and get there? Who would you grab? Who is desperately sick and you would get them to this place? That's what's going on here. In Jerusalem, people rise, Jesus of Nazareth, that great prophet, is in the temple and he's healing people. And they're grabbing people and they're taking there. They're taking lame people there. They're picking them up. If they had wheelchairs there, they'd be picking them up from their wheelchair and running them there. They were taking blind people there. And Jesus is healing them and healing them and healing them. And the, and the, and the lame are, 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 are standing. And they're, and, they're, and they're jumping for joy and they're laughing and they're shouting. And the blind are looking around and they're seeing and people are hugging and people are rejoicing. And the children are getting caught up into this. The children are seeing the joy. The children are seeing the miracles. The children are seeing the joy in, in the people that are healed and the joy in their parents. And look at what's happening verse 15. The children are crying out in the temple. It's like as if children with childlike faith are running through the temple saying, Hosanna in the high, Hosanna to the son of David. They're proclaiming. They're, they're hearing what their parents are saying and they're proclaiming. Messiah is here. Son of David. The royal son of David. The forever kingdom is come and it felt like the kingdom of God had broken out in that temple at that moment and at that time. That's what makes verse 15 so striking. Verse 15, but when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he did, the literal, says, the literal language, the Greek language here says, saw the wonders, the wonders that he did. And the children crying out in the temple, uh, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. What is going on here? This is unacceptable. Stop this now. They were indignant. And they say to Jesus, do you hear? It's actually an imperative. Listen. Listen. To what they are saying. And it's an indictment. Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus says, yes, I do. This is, the, this is what I've been talking about, he could have done on the say. This is childlike faith. This is the childlike faith which is essential to come into the kingdom. Yes, I see master theologians at work. Yes, I see great insight at work. Yes, I see people who see clearly what's going on and their infants and their children. And this is exactly what David said in Psalm 8. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. And Jesus left and he went to Bethany to spend the night. Now, what do we make of all this? Well, first of all, let's pause here for a second and let's look at these poor, sad chief priests and scribes. These sad, broken men. What is the matter with them? They're seeing lame people dancing and leaping and, and, and shouting, probably like the, the man in Acts did, dancing and leaping and praising God. They're seeing people 
who are completely blind, suddenly seeing and, and, and so on. They're seeing all of this, and they're so angry that it's taking place. They're so angry. They're also angry, no doubt, because Jesus had already sent out all of the people that they actually profited from. They actually profited from those sales. That Jesus had chased them all out, and it was, it was an, an indictment of their leadership of the temple. It's like, a, it's like a babysitter when parents come home and a babysitter uh, uh, has lost control of the kids and the kids are everywhere. And, uh, and the parents say to the children, now stop this, this is unacceptable. And they look at the babysitter like, this is under your watch. So these guys are feeling that, that whole thing that they've been judged by Jesus. And now they're seeing all of these wonders. And what is going on here? These are men whose hearts are held captive by sin and by Satan and by spiritual blinders. And they are even resisting the very work of God. The very Son of God is in their midst, and they can't see it. And they're resisting against all reason, against all evidence, against all biblical teaching. Jesus is quoting Bible verse after Bible verse after Bible verse to them. And against all of this stuff, their heart is turned. Their heart is indignant. Dear friends, this is what it means to be under the captivity and power of sin and Satan. This is what it means to be lost. And I know that everyone here, every single Christian here, you have people in your life that you love that are lost. And dear ones, I don't want to discourage you in any way. I want to encourage you speak to them. Live your life before them. Give evidence of the gospel to them. Quote scripture to them. These are the means that God uses as God gives you opportunity and utterance. But I want to urge you this, especially, especially pray for them. Just as Cliff was telling us this morning, you pray for them. Pray because it takes the power of God. To break the power of sin. It takes the power of God to raise the spiritual dead. It takes the power of God to give new life. It takes the power of God to open the eyes. It takes the power of God. Only he can humble them. Only he can move them. Only he can heal them. Only he can free them. And that's what Jesus is getting at with this, uh, this, this, this uh, passage that, that comes next. With this fig tree. Many commentators look at that fig tree and say that that fig tree in some ways very much resembles what Jesus just experienced in the temple. All kinds of leaves, the appearance of life and health, and no fruit, and no fruit. And Jesus condemns it, and it withers. And then Jesus tells, and they said, what's happening here? What's happening here? And Jesus says, listen, I need you disciples to have faith. I need you to trust. I need you to pray. And if you just have faith, if you will have faith and not doubt, great things will happen. And I want to urge all of us here. Do you know what it means to get alone with God because of such an urgency? Slot, shutting the door, locking it if need be, shutting that phone off, getting on your knees and pleading with some soul that that person would be saved that that person would come to know him, that that person's eyes would be open, that that person would come to believe. Do we know this? Do we know what it means to agonize for souls, to grieve for souls, to be anxious for souls, to want to see people saved? I believe that's what Jesus is showing us here as we see in the face of this unbelievable, to us, unbelievable hardness of heart. 
Oh, dear ones, let's be such people of prayer. Let's pray because only God can save. But God delights to save. God is mighty to save. And pray believing. And that's what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 22. Whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Pray believing. Pray pray full of confidence in God. Pray for God to move. Pray for God to work. Pray for God to save. As our dear brethren in the Far East have prayed for 15 years and are now seeing God move and work. But let's return to Jesus now. Let's not be like the chief priests and scribes. Let's look at Jesus now through the eyes of faith and see what we can learn from our master. And I'll tell you what we see here. When we see these cattle being herded out of here and, and these lambs being herded out of here and stampedes of lambs and people fleeing and running and money changers tables going over and money everywhere. When we see this kind of action, what are we looking at? What are we seeing? And I want to put before you what you're seeing is this. You're seeing love for God. You're seeing love for God. When Jesus was asked to summarize the law, or what was the greatest commandment? Jesus said this, the greatest commandment is this, to love God. Love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with your entire mind, and with your strength. Love God. That's the whole purpose why you and I are here on earth. It's the whole reason God created us. It's your whole purpose for living. It's my whole purpose for living. It's what we're supposed to be about. To love God. To have a zeal for God. To have a passion for God's glory. To have energy to see God glorified. That's what's going on here. Jesus walked into this temple, and what did he see? His father dishonored. His father being dishonored. His father's house being dishonored. And his love for God made him go into action. What did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, may your name be glorified and honored and hallowed above all things. That's love for God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1, Paul says this, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's loving God with everything you do, even down to the smallest things. We're to love God. We're to love God. And what you're seeing Jesus doing there is that. And love for God means this. And this is one aspect of it here. Love for God means loyalty to God. A protectiveness, if we can use this phrase, of God. An energy in the cause of God. And this is what you see in Jesus. Now, remember last week when we talked about the gentle kingdom. The gentle king coming in a donkey and the gentle kingdom. Well, it's interesting because verse 12 then, because you have, you have verse 5, you have tell the daughters, I behold, your king is coming, lowly, gentle, meek, the word could be translated, sitting on a donkey. And then you have verse 12, something that looks completely out of character of the gentle king. He's, he's, he's a wild man here. And he's, he's turning over tables. And he's chasing people out. What is this? What, how, 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 which one is it? 
Well, it's both. Let me illustrate this for you. Think of a mother. Think of a mother. Or think of a feeble grandmother. Or, and I'll just illustrate this for you, a feeble old grandfather. Okay? That's me. Think of a mother. Think of a feeble grandmother or a feeble old grandfather. And let's go with the mother at this point. She's sitting there and she's sweet, she's gentle, she's loving, she's kind. She may be a meek and godly woman. And she's holding her baby. She's holding her baby. She's, she's, she's taking, she's nurturing her baby. Her baby's just so comfortable there. And think what would happen if something at that moment threatened that baby. Somebody came in to hurt that baby. Somebody came in to grab that baby. That meek and gentle and humble mother or grandmother or grandfather, whatever it be, would in a very sense be out of character. You would see a zeal. You would see a vehemence. You would see an indignation. You would see a protectiveness. You would see violence. And that's what you're seeing here. The Lord Jesus Christ is being very zealous very wild, very socially disruptive. Why? Because he loves his father. And look at what's happening in the name of his father. The Lord Jesus Christ is totally oblivious at this point of what anybody thinks about him. Totally oblivious of, what, of what, how this is going to look in the papers the next morning. Totally oblivious about whether Facebook, how this is going to play out on Facebook. Jesus could care less. He's totally oblivious to how the chief priests and scribes are going to be angry. He's totally oblivious to how those guys are going to be angry who just lost their money as it got, as it got flipped up. Or how all those people felt like they lost all of their profit that day. He's totally oblivious to that. He could care less what they think about him. He could care less. Why? Because his love for God is so great. He wants his father to be honored. So let's apply this to ourselves. How would this look in our lives? How would this look in our lives? Well, by way of application, I want to look at two things. Zeal for the Father's house, and then zeal for the Father, because that's what you see in Jesus. Let's begin, first of all, with zeal for the Father's house. <coughs> Excuse me. We look here and we see Jesus showing immense zeal for the temple of God. So how do, we, how do we interpret that? Like, where do we put this in redemptive history? Okay, what does this mean? Okay, we don't have a temple now, do we? Well, hey, let's, let's think about this. Number one, Jesus is showing immense zeal for this temple, but look in chapter 24. Just flip over to chapter 24 and look at verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. This is the week that he's there in Jerusalem. And his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. Look, look back over your shoulder. Look at this amazing temple, Jesus. And Jesus said to them, do you, not, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. This temple is marked for destruction. This temple is not going to exist in their lifetime, actually. What's that mean? Well, you see, dear friends, in redemptive history, and at that point in redemptive history, that temple was the temple. 
It was the dwelling place, as it were, you could put it this way, of God on earth, although God does not live in it. It was the unique place that, uh, that represented God's presence upon earth. It did in a unique way. That was what the old covenant was about. The temple, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us, was a foreshadowing, as it were. It was a, it was a little mini model of what heaven itself is like with its, with its outer court, its inner court, and then its holy of holies. The writer of the Hebrews says that's, that's actually a model of what heaven is like in that sense, of, of, of being in the, in the sacred presence of God. And yet in another sense, also, that temple was the place where God dwelt, where you would have to go and meet, where, where the day of atonement, where the high priest would go in. But with the death of Jesus, the rendering of the, of the curtain in, in two and such, things begin to dramatically change. And then in Acts chapter 2, that same Shekinah glory, that same outpouring of the Holy Spirit that came upon the temple in Solomon's day at the first temple, that Shekinah glory now comes in a room upon people. It comes a room upon the apostles and others, upon people. And now a new temple has been created. A new temple is growing, and it's a unique temple. And it's, it's in, 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 in that sense, it's more beautiful than, than, than the original temple building was because it's a temple made, Peter says, of living stones, of people. It's a worldwide, wonderful, great temple. And we see that theology then worked out in Ephesians chapter 2. In the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is this beautiful temple. And so in Ephesians 2, Paul writes this in verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fit together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. He's talking about the New Testament church in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Where does God now dwell in the spirit on earth? And that is in his church, in his church. And in fact, the expression of that, the clearest expression of that is the local church. The local church is the clearest expression of this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, Paul is referring to the Corinthian church there and the disruption that some people are causing in that church. And in a chapter that's very context is the local church, Paul says this, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Don't no, put that one back up, please. Before we move on, I want you to understand something here because in evangelicalism, oftentimes people will use this concept uh, say, for instance, in terms of sanctification or even care for our body, you are, the temple of, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You as an individual are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and therefore you should guard. And that's, there's an aspect of that that is true. That's actually brought up in 1 Corinthians 6 when Paul talks about uh, sexual sin and things like that. But here, that you there is the plural you. If it, it, it would be, in Old English, it would be ye, which is the plural, thou being the singular. In Pittsburgh English, it would be yuns. It says, do, you, do yuns not know that yuns are the temple of God? It's plural there. If you were in Southern English, it's y'all. Do y'all not know that y'all are the temple of God? It's a plural there. It's a plural. So look at that in terms of plural. Do you, local Corinthian church... Do you not know that you, local Corinthian church, local church, are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you all? It dwells in your midst. Next, listen next. If anyone defiles the temple of God, 
God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy, which temple you all, yuns, you are. You are the temple of God. You are the dwelling place of God upon the earth. You are the place that God dwells. You are that temple now. Dear friends, what does this mean? This should show us the high esteem that the New Testament has for the local church. The local church is the Christ, only Christ-appointed organization that Christ has ordained. Christ has ordained the leadership of the local church. The Spirit dwells in the local church. It's a body of believers, and that body of believers, all of them having gifts, that body of believers is to minister one to another and to grow and build up one another and then, and then to witness and to, and to tell the good news to the world around them. That's the purpose of the local church. Dear friends, I have been a pastor now for over 40-some years. And my passion for the local church just grows and grows and grows. I have respect for parachurch organizations. I do. I, I'm on the board of some. I've been on the board of some. Delray Ministries, Fresh Ground, Downtown Ministries. I have the highest respect for those. But those ministries are not the local church. The Good Shepherd Center, is. they have a good purpose. They're not the local church. World Vision, great work, but it's not the local church. Here's what I'm trying to get at. Where I... I have such a passion for the local church and the primacy of the local church is this. I have watched in my life those believers who incorporate themselves into a local church over time are the ones whose, grow, whose roots grow deep in Christ, whose foundation is solid, who mature, and who have the greatest impact in the kingdom of God. Those who enter in and incorporate themselves into the local church. Now, this is way more than just showing up to, to, to listen to sermons on a Sunday morning. I'm talking about something way more than that, although that's important. Gathering with God's people when the Spirit is present, the Word of God is being opened. That's life transformative in and of itself. But I'm talking about relationships, developing relationships, connecting with people, having God's people in your life to, to support you, to encourage you, to challenge you, to admonish you if need be, to be role models for you, to have fathers and mothers in the faith, and to have people who you can look up to, and to have them interacting and involved in your life, to being a part, to, to and, and be involved in the gift of, of other people and their gifts being used toward you, and you experiencing your gifts. That is the key for people to grow in grace to see people involved in the local church and my zeal for the local church and I hope your zeal for the local church is to be strong because God is glorified God had the temple in Jerusalem destroyed for a reason get it out of the way so that the true temple of God can grow and grow and grow around the world in these local churches and dear friends I need to tell you something and here I may Okay, just write me off, but I'm going to say it anyway. My zeal for the local church burns. It burns. I want God glorified in the local church. And so when I see the local church being marketed like it's some kind of commodity, when I see the local church being filled with celebrity preachers with their cool hairstyles and their cool jeans, celebrity preachers who can, who can speak and say things and make us laugh and make us joke and are entertaining until, of course, they fall into sin. And my soul burns when I see that. 
instead of focusing upon the whole body of Christ. When I see trite and trivial and cute signs out front of churches saying trite, trivial, cute things, I'm thinking, we've taken the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ and we've made it this trite and this trivial that it's a little pithy saying. And my, my soul burns when I see the church degraded like that. My soul burns when I see churches have fundraisers. The church with its hand out to the street. Help us, help us buy our strawberries, buy our, our chicken pies, buy our this, buy our that. We can't survive, the church can't survive unless we hawk our wares. What a dishonoring thing. Could you see them outside Buckingham Palace say, oh, please buy these little mementos of the queen because we have to keep the queen in bed. She's not going to have any money. No, no, no. The queen of England would go out there if she had any dignity, and she does. She would go out there and say, get out, you're, you're dishonoring me. You're dishonoring this royal family. We're dishonoring the royal name of Jesus Christ when we have to go with our hat in our hand outside of the church. My soul burns at the entertainment that we have in churches today. We lower the lights. We have lights that flash around. We have smoke coming up. And we have entertainers upon the stage. My soul burns when I see that. To take away from the majesty and greatness and simplicity of worshiping Jesus as the human voices are singing simple songs to him. My soul burns when the church's message becomes man-centered. God is here to make you happy. God is here to make you healthy. God is here to meet all of your psychological needs. God is here to make your marriage better. God is here to make you rich. God is here to make you this. And God is pushed to the side as some little lackey. My soul burns. My soul burns when we lose the gospel and we politicize the church and we start making the church part of the Republican Party, start making the church part of the Democratic Party, start making the church part of some kind of cultural war. My soul burns. My soul burns when the church is shown with pride and clicks and power grabs and gossip and slander and backbiting and sin. No wonder Jesus says, I will remove the candlestick. Dear ones, we need to have a passion for the glory and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ in the church. And the church, this church, I commend this church. In a church where Christ is honored and we have a passion for his zeal and we have a passion to see him glorified and we're humbly opening the Bible and simply following the Bible and not following man-made inventions, not following man-made things. Not, we don't have smells and bells and robes and priests and candles and, and holy water and entertainment and, and disco. No, dear friends. Open the word. Love the Savior. Follow him. Be a biblical church. And see, that's what Jesus is doing. Have you not read? Have you not read? We need to bring this back to the Bible. And that's what it means, dear friends, to have. That's why we use the phrase biblical church here. Finally, I would say this. Let's not only have zeal for the Father's house. Let's have zeal for the Father. When you look at Jesus Christ in this scene, in this temple, you should look and you should say in your heart, I do. I want to be like him. I want to be that man. I want to have that kind of love for God. Dear friends, let's make it our aspiration to love God with all that we've got. Do you love God? Not do you come in church and, and the music makes you feel happy about God and then you leave. I'm talking about on Tuesday morning, on Wednesday afternoon, Thursday night, Friday night. 
Saturday morning, do you love God? Do you love God? Do you wake up in the morning loving God? Is God the greatest thing, the thing that you most value, the one that you most value the most? Is God the one you want to be the closest to? Is God the one that, that, that stirs our heart more deeply than anyone else? God is supposed to be the reason we wake up. God is supposed to be the reason we do what we do. God is supposed to be the one who directs us through the day. A love of God should be why we live our life, why we serve others, why we say what we say, why we do what we do, why we think what we think, why the things that go on in our hearts go on in our hearts. We are called to love God with all that we have. How we live our lives, the words that come out of our mouth, how we use our body, how we do everything is all supposed to be motivated and directed and guided because, man, do I love God. God means everything to me. God is special. My relationship with God is the most important thing. That's where Jesus is at. Jesus walked into that temple and thought, wait a minute. No way. I love my father too much to let this go on. Do we love God so much that we're oblivious to what other people think about us? Do we love God so much that we don't even think about how they view us? Do we love God so much? Like I said, I've said it time and time again. I love seeing an absolutely beautiful woman dressed in a beautiful dress, holding a baby in her hand, and then grabbing the boogers off that baby's nose and wiping them on herself. And I know that same woman, because I've got a bunch of them in my life, some beautiful women like that. I, I, I know them same women, my daughter, my daughter-in-law. I knew those same women two years earlier. They would have never wiped boogers on their dress. They were too chic for that. But now they got something way more important to them than chic. They've got a human being that they absolutely love. And dear friends, that's what we need to be toward God. I don't care what people think about me, the Christians should say. I don't care if they cancel me. I don't care what people think. I don't care what they likes or not likes I get on Facebook. I don't care. That doesn't even register to me because I love God. He's been so good to me. I'm so honored to be in a relationship with him. He's cleansed me of all of my sins. He sacrificed his own son for me. He is so good, so holy, so beautiful, so caring, so compassionate, so merciful, so patient with me. So amazing, so powerful, so wise, so glorious. He's been so faithful. He's been with me. See, dear friends, that's what it means to love God. And I want to urge you to nourish a love for God. How can you do that? The main primary way that you do that, and I'm telling you, this is what it does for me, is get near him. Look at him. Be with him. Talk to him. Explore him. Praise him. Praise him. Thank him. And as you start to see his glory, and you start to live and walk throughout the day in his holiness, and you start to feel the security that comes by his power, and you start to feel the patience that he has shown you, 
and the grace that even allows you to be his child and the beauty of who he is. You just, you just have to love him. You have to think about him. You have to be drawn to him. You become zealous for him. You want him glorified. You consider it an honor to just give yourself as a living sacrifice to him. Oh, dear ones, I know we're busy. I know the world calls in. I know the boss is harping. I know the deadlines need to be reached. But in the midst of all of this, dear ones, please draw near to God. Get to know God. See God by faith until your heart is just stirred and he becomes the most beloved thing in your life. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength with all your mind. I just hope if there's an unbeliever here, I just hope in my heart that this has become attractive to you. And you've been going through life alone and empty and it just keeps getting emptier and emptier and more disillusioned and more disillusioned and all of a sudden here's somebody saying, look at him. He's glorious. He's eternal and he's ready to be your father and to draw you near to him and make you his child. Come to him through Jesus. Come to him through Jesus. Trust in Jesus, and he will bring you to the Father. Let's pray together. Father, we, we just thank you so much that you have chosen us and called us and brought us into a relationship with you. And that we have the privilege of calling you Father. Thank you so much that you are our God. And Father, we don't want to love the world. We don't want to love ourselves. We don't want to love our pride. We don't want to love our reputation. We don't want to love our social standing. We don't want to even love our appetites more than we love you. Father, just help us, we pray. Every small glimpse that we get of you is so amazing and so glorious. Father, draw us closer. Make us like Jesus, we pray. Help us to love you. Help us to set this as our goal in life, to love you, to know you and to love you. Draw us near to you, we pray. Help us to love your church, to love your temple where you dwell, to love these dear people to love seeing you in their heart and in their lives. Father, help us, we pray, to be like Jesus, loving you and loving your church. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.